Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to read from our scripture today, Luke 2, verses 8 through 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and it had been told them, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. All right, everybody. Let's do it. Let's jump into the word of God for today. It is, uh, it's pretty fun to talk about where we're fu- from, you know, where we're from. Uh, Jana and I, we, um, we both, we're, we're from the South. My accent, my Southern accent came back this week. It was great. My cousin Bo, B-O, Bo was up from Texas, from Waco. And by the end of our time together, I sounded like I belonged on like the Dukes of Hazard, And so, and it may stick around a little longer. <laughs> and, um, but we, like Jan and I, because we've moved around, you know, we were, I was born in Georgia. She was born in Alabama. We met at a punk rock show and we fell in love, as you do, at a punk rock show. And, um, you know, went to college in the South, my master's in the South, but then we moved to England and then... We were out here in Seattle for a year and then in Nevada for a couple of years and then boomeranged back here. And though we aren't technically from here, it, Seattle feels like home to us. Um, and it's really, but it's special. And so over the years, we've reflected a lot on where we're from and how that has shaped us for, for better and worse. And maybe you've done some of that too. Um, I know that I grew up I thought it was a suburbs. It was, in fact, uh, I figured out later when I moved to a big city called London, I figured out, oh, wait, I'm actually from the sticks. 
I was, Woodstock, Georgia was like a blinking traffic light town. And I drove by Cowfields to go to high school. I mean, maybe some of you are from places like that. And where we're from can sometimes make us feel all kinds of feelings. Maybe it's a feeling of complete inferiority and insecurity, like me. Like, I was from a, from a farm town, so I'm not from a big city. Uh, no universities around, progressive ideas were not floating down the street. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I'm just some kid from some farm town. So you can feel kind of insecure, maybe. Maybe... Um, if you're from the city, you might feel feelings of maybe superiority. At least we're not, you know, from that place where all those hicks are from. Or maybe the shoes get flipped around on the other foot. Maybe you're from a rural place and you're like, I am so glad I did not grow up with all the crazy that comes with being in a crazy city. Or maybe you grew up in the city going, gosh, I'd give anything to get out of this place and go be <laughs> in a place like Mayberry or whatever. I don't know. But location, locatedness matters. It matters tremendously to God, in fact. Like the Bible doesn't just talk about Rome or Alexandria, Egypt. It mentions these little obscure, no-name towns like Bethlehem, Nazareth. And there's not one place on the earth that's more important to God or more valuable to God than another. It's all his, whether it's a big city or a little farm town. There's some suburban place with a nice target. It's all his, you know. They all matter. And when you think about a theology of place, the Bible has a lot to say. Maybe the first thing that might come to your mind is maybe the Garden of Eden, a location. Maybe it's the story of the Hebrew people being delivered out into a promised land where God would tabernacle with his people. And eventually, a, a temple would be built, and God's presence would dwell in a specific place. Location matters. It's not the most important thing, but it does speak to us, and it shapes us. And so, as we think about where Jesus is from, we're only gonna look at this one verse today from Luke chapter two, verse 11. And we're looking specifically at the city of David, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And what we're going to do is go back and look at this specific city. <laughs> when we say city, I need to qualify what a city counts as in the ancient Near East. Uh, a city was just a place that had walls up. Everything else was a village. <laughs> a city, like when you think the city of Jericho, like, you know, and the walls fall down. I grew up thinking a, a kind of a big place. It was only 10 acres. That's it. Jerusalem, during the reign of King Solomon, 30 some, 33 acres, I think. That's it. Like a farm. <laughs> um, by the time Jesus was on the scene, Jerusalem was nothing but 300 acres. By the year 300 AD, Rome had reached basically what would become its pinnacle and then continued from there. Rome was almost a million people. <laughs> so when we think Bethlehem, we're talking a hundred people, maybe, lived in this, quote, city. So just because it's an obscure place 
doesn't mean it doesn't matter to God. In fact, it's in this obscure, ordinary, tiny place that some of the most significant seeds of the gospel were planted throughout Israel's history. These trajectories are set so that by the time Jesus is born on this and, and comes onto the scene and begins to carry out his ministry, there's so much history that's been pointing toward him that as he embodies what it is to be the God-man, all of the Old Testament stories begin to just light up in a way like never before. They begin to, to like a 3D pop-up book, like you've been reading it, but then you turn the page and the castle comes off the page like, whoa, that's what happens as we read the, the gospels or read the, the, the story of the scripture Christologically through the person and the work of, of, of Jesus. So we're going to talk about Bethlehem. So let me tell you, I'll not stick to the manuscript because we can just try that. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be here until next Christmas. Okay, so the first story that happens in Bethlehem that you need to know about is the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Now, I've always struggled with, I struggle with hard parts of the Bible like Joshua, Canaan, right? There's those parts of the Bible you're like, ah, man, I feel kind of, I don't know what to do with this part of the Bible. This is not one of those parts I'm actually struggling with. The story with Jacob and Rachel and Leah is that this family is the most dysfunctional family in the world. And in fact, as you read through your Old Testament and you read their stories, you're going, there's a bunch of lying, there's cheating, there's stealing, there's adultery, there's, and it kind of goes on and on and on. There's murder. I mean, you're going, good grief, these families are the most dysfunctional people in the world. And then you read it again and go, oh my gosh, my family's a lot like this too. And I love that about the Bible because the Bible's not a fairy tale. They're preserving real names and faces and dates and stories and accounts that happened. And they're not polishing everything to make it just look like, look at all these perfect people who had their act together. If you read the stories, you go, nobody has their act together except for the Son of God. These dysfunctional families end up being God's family. So if you feel kind of dysfunctional today, <laughs> you're in a good place. You're in a safe place because God is not out looking for performers. He's here to adopt orphans into his family. Amen? Okay, so let's go. First, there's Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Jacob, is a, he's known as the deceiver. He's a trickster. Not a really great guy. He has an older brother named Esau. If you remember the story, Esau had been out hunting, came home with nothing that particular day, and Esau, the firstborn, was to receive the birthright, the family inheritance. Esau comes to Jacob. Jacob is sitting here. He's been cooking. And uh, Esau approaches Jacob and says, man, give me, please, give me something to eat. Jacob goes, all right. You seem really hungry. How hungry are you? You hungry enough to give up? say, your whole inheritance. <laughs> and Esau, in a moment of impulsivity, thinking purely with his stomach, says, you know what? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Take it all. Give me the soup. Right? You remember this story? And so he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jacob then, later that evening, goes into their father's tent 
Isaac. Isaac's getting old and blind, can't see. And Jacob puts on some animal skins, fur, because Esau was super hairy. <laughs> and so he goes over to his dad and says, Dad, bless me. Give me the inheritance. And Isaac's like, oh, that's my, okay, right. And he, get, and he says this blessing over Jacob. The next day, Esau finds out and is out to kill Jacob. And Jacob's kind of dodging his brother. And their mother goes to Jacob and says, Jacob, you got to get out of here, man. Your brother's seriously going to kill you. So Jacob goes on the run. <laughs> and out in the desert, he finds this woman named Rachel. This beautiful woman is there tending to her flock. She's a shepherd or shepherdess. And she's tending to her flock. Jacob sees her and is blown away. She's beautiful. He goes over and begins to speak to her. And they instantly, like two punk rock kids, they fall in love. And Jacob, <laughs> Jacob then says, let's, let's get married. And she says, that's a good idea. I need to go back. Let's talk to my dad, Laban, about it. So they go back to Laban. And Laban says, sure, you can marry my daughter if you work for me for seven years. So he goes, okay, I'll do it. Fine. <laughs> And then on the wedding night, the trickster gets tricked. Laban doesn't bring out Rachel. He brings out Leah in the way the Bible describes Leah. <laughs> She's less pretty. And they, in their tradition, you wouldn't actually see the woman being given away in marriage. They would wear a covering over their face completely. So he goes to the altar to get married, says I do. They get home. He takes the veil off, and boom, that's not the woman I wanted. He goes to Laban and says, Laban, what is this? And he's like, sorry, it's what it is. But if you're still interested in Rachel, you can work another seven years, and then I'll let you marry my daughter. And so Jacob does. And now the story gets crazy. <laughs> like, I thought this was dysfunctional already. No, it gets worse. These two sisters are now married to this one guy. How could anything possibly go wrong in a situation like this? So Leah begins to birth boy after boy after boy. She has four sons. And all of her sons, by the way, are going to grow up and become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. These are going to be important guys. She has four sons, and Rachel, she can't get pregnant, and she is enraged. So she goes, and she's yelling at God, and then she goes to Jacob and says, it's your fault. And he's like, well, no, I can't open the womb and bring forth a baby, and they're going through this whole thing. Why is she panicking? Well, one, in their culture, for a woman to go unmarried and without a son it's two things. One, there was tremendous shame associated in that culture at that day and that time for a woman like her. Two, it was very dangerous for her husband, say, to pass away and then not have a son there to work the field to protect or provide for her. It puts her in a really vulnerable place. So she's panicking. She's at her wit's end. So what does she do? She goes to a maidservant, hires her out, and says, you're going to basically serve as a surrogate. The maidservant gives birth. 
Leah gets word, and Leah goes, oh, no, no, no. You're not going to start this. So she hires out a maidservant and gives birth to another son. And the family is getting bigger and more and more crazy. And then, in his mercy, God gives Rachel a son. His name was Joseph. And as she delivers Joseph, she shouts out to God in incredible gratitude and says, the Lord has had mercy on me. He's taken away my reproach. God has taken away my shame. A shame-removing God. A God that sees the vulnerable, the one who's blushing, the one who's utterly endangered even. And God does not wince at that, but moves toward a place or a person who's been covered up in shame. Maybe, maybe that might sound like good news to you today. <laughs> maybe the last year, last week, or even yesterday, you might have filled your life with some kind of shame. Might have done something. Maybe somebody's done something to you and you feel shame, which can be so crippling because it's not just an inward feeling. It's an outward experience depending on who finds out. And God is not embarrassed or ashamed to identify with those in their shame. I found myself in a therapist's office seven years ago, and I told my therapist, I'm just a big pile of mistakes. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you've made some wrong turns. I need you to know, to step right behind my sister, my other sister, who's led us wonderfully this morning, thank you, ladies, to say God, in his faithfulness, moves towards someone in their brokenness, and in their shame. When Rachel died, they buried Rachel in Bethlehem. The first story you need to know about the city of David is that God sees people in their shame and moves toward them, not away from them. That's for you. That's for our city. So that's the first story. The second story, if you fast forward roughly 400 years, you get to a woman named Ruth. Remember this story? Okay, so there's a woman named Naomi. She and her husband, Elimelech, lived in the city of Bethlehem. Ironically, there was a famine in the house of bread. No bread in the house of bread. So they moved to a place called Moab. It was a pagan country. And as they move with their two boys down to Moab, the boys marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. The sons die in Moab. Elimelech, he dies. Now all that's left in the picture are Ruth, Orpah, and their mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi's looking around going, we're exposed, we're vulnerable, something terrible could happen to us. Ruth, being from Israel, she's extremely vulnerable. So Ruth, uh, Ruth I'm sorry, Naomi suggests to Ruth and Orpah, you need to just find two men, two Moabite men, marry those guys. Best of luck. I'm going to head back to Bethlehem and try to start over. I don't know how this is going to go for me. 
Orpah goes, okay, <laughs> see you later. Ruth, however, says, oh, no, 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 no. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm going with you. So in this unbelievable moment of loyalty to Naomi, Ruth and Naomi pack up and they go back to Bethlehem. And there they are as they show up as refugees, exposed. They come upon a field and they begin to glean. Ruth in particular begins to take the barley. And a man that owns that field, you know his name, Boaz. Boaz notices them and Boaz instructs his men, hey, do not harass them, do not touch them, do not give them a hard time. You should let them glean from this field. Why? Because Boaz had actually been reading Leviticus and was obeying what Leviticus instructs. When you see a refugee, when you see somebody in need, when you see somebody hungry, you are to leave the edges of your field unplowed. Do not harvest that, but leave that for those in need, right? So Boaz instructs them, let's obey the Bible, guys. And he does. Then, uh, as they begin to harvest, Boaz begins to talk with Ruth and even prays for her. Ruth goes home and tells Naomi, I met Boaz. He prayed for me. And Naomi says, did you know that the, the guy's actually one of my relatives? And according to the law, he, he should technically step in and do something about our situation. Go talk to him. So Ruth changes out of her mourning clothes, her, her, her funeral clothing, and goes to Boaz and says, will you redeem me? Will you step in? Boaz says, yeah, let's do it. I'll step in. I'll step in. And so the next day they go to the town hall and they find out there's another redeemer in the family that was in line before Boaz that should have stepped in. And they tell the guy, hey, you're actually first in line to step in and take responsibility for your family. Are you down to do this? And he goes, no, I don't, this is not my situation. And Boaz goes, well, I'll do it. I, I, I'm, I'm committed. I'll do it. And so they get married. And Obed was born, the great granddad to King David. The second story you need to know about the city of Bethlehem is that there's a redeemer who sees the vulnerable, moves toward, and says, I'm here to provide, I'm here to protect, I'm here to sacrifice and look after because I care about your flourishing. So Bethlehem now is a place where shame gets covered up and provision is made. The third story is the most obvious one. We just mentioned his name, King David. So, if you remember in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, the prophet is instructed, go to the house of Jesse and find me the king. Find the future king of Israel. As you know, Samuel goes, knocks on the door. Jesse comes to the door and says, let me see the boys. One of them are going to be king one day. So Jesse gets all the boys out except for who? The scrawniest runt in the pack, David, who's out tending sheep, just a little guy. <laughs> he brings all the boys before the prophet, and he's like, 
nope, 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 nope. Are you sure you don't have any other sons? He's like, well, we got David. Go, go get David. <laughs> they bring David in. Samuel sees him standing there in the living room and says, you're going to be the king. This is the king. The shepherd boy is going to grow up and become king of the Jews. And he does what you only do for priests. He takes all this oil, pours it over the head of David. David is set apart. David is anointed to one day grow up and become king of the Jews. And so as David grows up, he grows up under the first king of Israel known as Saul. And as they're growing up, you see their stories begin to contrast more and more and more and more. And Saul becomes more and more jealous and more and more enraged about this one that nobody knows is actually anointed to become the king. And so the first big story you see David in is where? He's with Goliath. Goliath is down in the valley. The Philistines are taunting the Israelites and mocking their God every day. Goliath is down there. David gets word that there's a bully, that there's a violent man, and they're about to take over. And David goes, is anybody going to go fight? No takers. David goes, I'll take him. David goes to Saul, tells Saul, I want to go to war. I'll fight that guy. Everyone laughs. Saul says, well, if, you're gonna, if you insist, <laughs> take my armor. And in this moment of contrast, David goes, no, your armor's actually a little too big for me. I don't need that. And he goes and gets his five stones, fills his slingshot. How dare you defy the God of Israel? Charges into battle as a boy. <laughs> Slings his slingshot. One stone smashes the giant's skull and he falls dead. David charges down into the valley, cuts his head off in a brave heart moment. He's like, yes. <laughs> and Israel wins the day. King Saul becomes enraged. And from that moment forward begins to hunt David like prey. David lives out in the desert. He's hiding constantly. That's what so many of these psalms are. My enemies are encamped around me. They're coming for me. That's what he's talking about. As he's out there in the desert, he keeps his faith in God. He knows he's anointed to become king. He has a couple of occasions to actually kill Saul himself, remember? But he doesn't. He lets his enemy live. And then you get to this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's at this time that the people begin to chant and sing about David. Remember? Saul has killed his thousands. David's killed his tens of thousands. David's growing in popularity. And God makes this promise. From you, there's going to come a king that's going to reign on the throne forever and ever. The son of man. Saul eventually loses his mind and ends up dying in battle. And everybody wants David at that point, the humble shepherd boy, to become the king of the Jews. And as David steps into becoming king of the Jews, he leads, he has his mistakes, he makes his sins, all of his stories that we know about. But he keeps his faith in God and stays repentant and keeps working 
on his salvation. And in 1 Samuel chapter 23, there's this part that's so unbelievable. I'll just read it because I don't want to skip this. 1 Samuel 23. Sorry, 2 Samuel 23. Listen to this. Verse 15. They're in battle. And David's getting to be an old man at this point. Listen to what he says. David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. He began to daydream about his hometown. That's what you do when life is hard. You daydream some, don't you? Oh, that someone would give me water. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it to David. David has the best friends in the whole world. But he would not drink it. He poured it out on the ground to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should drink this. Should I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These are the things that the mighty men did. So, You've got these three stories now. Rachel, Ruth, King David. And then you open this page in Luke chapter 2 as the Gospels begin. And the angel is found announcing, Rejoice unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ our Lord. And all these trajectories that had been building since 1400 BC, since 1100 BC, all had been ramping toward this moment. The Son of God is born in the city of David, Bethlehem. And as Jesus begins his ministry and carries out his ministry, you've got to follow these lines, trace these trajectories because they are not there by happenstance or one offs. So think of Rachel, Jesus covering shame. In John chapter 8, Jesus is confronted with a situation in which a woman is caught in adultery, which is punishable by death according to the Jewish law, brought before Jesus, and the accusers say, what should we do with this woman? And Jesus, what does he say? We'll let you without sin be the first to cast the stone at her. And they all dropped their stones and walked Away. Jesus then looks at the woman, loves her, gives her her dignity back in that moment, and says, Where are your accusers? And he's the only just one that could accuse her and bring down the judgment of God. And she says, uh, They've all left. He goes, Well, I don't condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin. You're free to go. Looks like this city called Bethlehem, where God began covering shame, brought forth the Son of God who was able and willing to stand before people and say, I'm here to take away your shame. That's amazing. That's amazing. I don't know the last time you found yourself in a place of shame, but if you've ever had that moment where the Holy Spirit reaches into your life and takes that shame away? 
(laughs) There's nothing like it. That's for you today. Whether you don't know Jesus, this is your invitation to follow him. And if you've known Jesus for 25 years, he's still here to take away your shame. When Jesus gave his life, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Which is exactly what you would find (laughs) on the lips of a redeemer. Ruth's story says there's a protector and a redeemer coming from Bethlehem. And as Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he found his way to Jerusalem and did precisely that. He redeems his people. David's story says there's a king of the Jews. And instead of asking for water from Bethlehem, Jesus goes to Jerusalem in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, and stands up at the great feast and says, if anyone's thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And from them will well up rivers of living water are going to bubble out of these people. Any of you who are thirsty can come drink. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. I don't care about all the things that everyone says that keeps distance between me and you. I'm telling you here at Passover, if anyone's thirsty, let them come. Let them drink from the well of living water. That is so good. So rather than pour water out on the ground as a sacrifice to God, Jesus becomes the sacrifice and says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Come and drink here. If your soul is parched, this is what you need. More than a great holiday season, you need to drink from the well of the living water. What a savior. And on the titular, above Jesus' head, what did they nail above his head? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And ironically, (laughs) he was. Not only is he king of the Jews, but because he conquered death, he is now savior of the world. That is the good news of the gospel. So Merry Christmas, Advent is about celebrating not only the arrival of the king, but we await the return of our king. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the good news.